couple of things about the film. It took us two years to make. Um, half the time, I was doing it between paying jobs because nobody paid this. I financed the film. I financed my projects myself. And um, very appreciative to Bonnie and Arnold for opening their home and their lives to me, as well as their, their friends, Ray and Al. Um, we came out here in May to shoot in New York um, and to interview some of the folks who are here this evening. And uh, we also shot in Phoenix, where we interviewed Felipe Alou, because uh, there was, uh, there's a chapter in the film called Latin American Ballplayers Need a Bill of Rights. And Arnold was writing about the, the discrimination, specifically this Felipe Alou was facing uh, when he played in a tournament in 1962 in Winter League, again, when Cuba played the Dominican Republic. All the Major League Baseball players were fined uh, $250 because there was an embargo against Cuba at the time. Um, so he and Orlando Cepeda participated in interviews for that, and they gave tremendous interviews. And uh, so uh, I encourage you to uh, get your own copy of the film and, and explore the life of this, uh, this, this, this American treasure. Uh, very cheap treasure. It was not $5, George. It was about $2.10 for that ticket to the World Series. Uh, anyway, and, and the... Uh, that piece, the Latin American Bill of Rights piece, was assigned by Al Silverman, who's sitting right there. Uh, he, uh, he knew enough that, that this was something that had to be explored, and I was uh, a person to explore it, because I had a feeling about the Latin ballplayers that uh, was being missed by most of the press, most of the media. Uh, for instance, you take uh, uh, Roberto Clemente. When he would come into a uh, Pittsburgh uh, uh, ballpark at midday, uh, manager Danny Murta would say, uh, hello, Roberto, how are you today? And he would shrug and say, my left shoulder hurts. And Murta would immediately cross him off the, uh, the opening lineup. Uh, and he'd say to the press, uh, Roberto can't play today, his shoulder hurts. Well, that's sheer nonsense. All ball players' shoulder hurts in August. They ache all over in August and September. But the Anglo ball player doesn't talk about it. If you say to to any of them, hey John, how are you feeling? Fine, how are you feeling? Fine, and we're both lying. Uh, but the Latin ball player, when you say how are you feeling, takes it seriously. He thinks you really care. If I were to say to Jose Luis at any time, como esta Jose Luis, uh, how are you? Be prepared for 60 minutes of hearing about uh, uh, his various ailments, and uh, including a, a large segment of bowel movements. Uh, uh, <laughs> The Latin ball player w was being treated, well, it was, it was a mismanagement of, of, of communication. They, 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 they weren't getting their, their, their due, and uh, Al knew that, and he asked me to look into that, and with Felipe Alou, we did. Felipe Alou was a, a wonderful interview, and when the piece was finally finished, I finally finished the piece, uh, he had to read each, each page, and then initially each page to indicate that he had read it. And he, was, he read the first page, and, and I said, you know, just initial them, they're, you know, they're all about the same. He said, I have to read this piece. And, and he was very serious, and he read the piece, and he finished it, uh, and, he, and I said, you know, Sport Magazine, typically, Sport Magazine is not gonna pay you anything for this. Uh, and he said, I would pay to have this piece published. And so uh, it was published, and the Giants uh, traded him off about a month or two later. Uh, I think for being a malcontent or, or something to that effect. Anyway, uh, 
that's, it. that's just a little piece of, of baseball history that I was involved in, and uh, and I, I'm pleased with with that that Orlando Cepeda treats me the way he treats me. When I go into a, a, a clubhouse, a giant clubhouse back then, to do a piece, let's say, on Mike McCormick or Jim Davenport or somebody, Cepeda would grab me and take me over to Juan Marichal and say, Juan, this is our friend Arnold Haino, and we would shake hands, and, and Jose Pagan, this is our friend Arnold Haino, and Felipe and, and Mateo, uh, and that was, that was nice. It was warm and it was, it was lovely. Well, uh, just a little follow-up on that is that Arnold has told me that Felipe told him that he felt no, no one did more to help Latin American ballplayers in the 60s than Arnold. And when I reached out to both Orlando and Felipe, they said that they would be honored to talk about Arnold. They remembered him fondly, even though it had been 50 years. It's nice. Since, and it's nice. and uh, I interviewed Felipe. He had about a half an hour of time. This was during spring training uh, this past April. And, uh, you know, both of the interviews with 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 Felipe and Orlando were painful because we were recalling, you know, difficult times and emotions for them. Uh, but they were heartfelt interviews. But Felipe said, I still get that article, that magazine sent to me to autograph. I get, like, he said, just last week, people sent me two of them. He said, this is incredible. And by the way, he was still very annoyed that he struck out in the uh, ninth inning of the game seven of the 1962 World Series. <laughs> he, was, he says, I'm still upset about it. Well, he was upset when he got to the ballpark that day, and he, he said to me, he said, I can't hit. He said, the wind is blowing. He said, I, there's no place for me to hit the ball. These things don't occur to, to me or to writers. But uh, he looked that field over, and he quit, uh, which is very sad. Anyway, Mateo got on base. I think he walked, and he got on base. and. And then they moved along until finally Willie McCovey hit that line drive and this World Series was over and, <laughs> and they lost. Uh, anyway, it was, a, a, it, it was nice knowing those guys. I was glad that Felipe Alou was at the, uh, at the screening in, in uh, San Francisco. Orlando Cepeda. Oh, oh, excuse me. Thank you, Orlando Cepeda. And th they introduced uh, uh, John, they introduced me. We got nice, nice, you know, six people out of 200, uh, out of being people <laughs> applauded. Uh, and then uh, they introduced Alana Cepeda, and the place went crazy. Mm -hmm. So that was really nice. Before we take a question, can you talk a little bit about your writing style and how you came to it and how it was sort of part of the, uh, the new journalism piece? Well, I, I, can, I don't know. My, my writing style is a bunch of uh, uh, little words. Ray Robinson here uh, described it as, as, as somebody who you just used short words. It, it made for problems because a, a, an editor would say, give me 3,500 words on this. And so I give him 35, maybe 3,600, give him some room to, to cut. Uh, and they'd come back and say, that's too short. We need a, a, another 1,000 words. Because I did write short words. And, and they filled <laughs> characters, uh, character counts. And, and I didn't fill the character counts that they were looking for. And so I had to get, write some more words. Which was lovely. I'd rather do five thousand than thirty-five hundred any day. So one of the things I didn't know about Arnold that we discovered along the way: number one, he's a tremendous archivist. He saved everything, <laughs> like sixty boxes of stuff in his house, all his old magazines, articles, and stuff. But he wrote about a lot more than sports. Um, the piece that he wrote in Saga magazine, again with Al Silverman, the editor of that periodical, uh, the piece on the mistreatment of migrant farm workers in California won the, uh, was, that was in 1963, so he wins the Sidney Hillman Prize for Journalism, and in the same year he wins uh, the, uh, 
the uh, magazine Sports Writer of the Year Award from his yeah. peers, and he writes for TV Guide and so many other magazines, women's magazines, Red Book, a Seventeen, which which Ray edited. Yeah, Ray, Ray, uh, Ray gave me a series of, of assignments for Seventeen that I really enjoyed. Uh, the Jesus Kids, for instance, uh, w was was one. Uh, he sent me to a Navajo uh, high school, and I spent a week there uh, doing those kids. Uh, Ray Ray was was Ray and Al the two was one of my great 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 editors and. And Ray kept me going in the very beginning. His first assignment when I got out to the West Coast, he, he, was, he was working for Paget Magazine, and he said, uh, give me a piece on Jane Mansfield. And I winced. Uh, I said, I don't, you know, what do you think, I am a porn artist? Or what are you, uh, I don't care. I was scared to death of a, of a big blonde. Uh, <laughs> so so a, a, a week later, he comes back with, okay, do a piece on Mickey Rooney. More my size. <laughs> And I did that piece, and we went on, and I, I did about 100 pieces for, uh, for, of celebrities, and uh, Ray was responsible for a lot of those. Mike? Uh, my question is a non-baseball question, so I guess it fits Good. into the, the follow-up, the first follow-up there. Um, it, it mentioned the environmental case that you were involved in. Is that the, is that the case where trees were first given a legal standing in court? The William trees were getting a, well, the William O. Douglas decision. No, no, and I, I wish, no, no, uh, you know, uh, my piece that, that William O. Douglas uh, was quoting from dealt with the Mineral King, okay. a, a snow basin in the, in the High Sierra, which is just a magnificent piece of work, something that should not be tarnished. Uh, to get there, you've got to drive to it and then switch from your car or whatever it is to a snowmobile and go as far as you can and then go, go walking the rest of the way knee-high through the snow. Uh, and maybe six or eight people go there a week. And Disney wanted to uh, chop down the trees and put in a parking lot for 2,000 cars mm -hmm. and build a hotel and uh, two restaurants and even a chapel. This place didn't need a chapel. Uh, and uh, and uh, uh, that was that. And uh, uh, the piece I wrote was said with the things I'm sort of saying right now. And uh, it, Disney tucked its tail between its legs and scurried off after the piece came out. And William O. Douglas, on a sidebar piece, quoted, uh, uh, he said, I've never been to Mineral King, but I've read about it, notably Hano and the title. And then he used a lot of my stuff in his, in his opinion. But, but was the opinion, my question is, though, was the opinion the one, uh, I can't remember the name of the case, but there was a case where Douglas was the first to give legal standing to trees and streams, um, and I'm just curious if that was. It's not. The, it's not that piece, but but uh, but he did. His his piece really was based on Sierra Club's right to bring a a suit against Disney, and whether whether um, uh, uh, it, it had whether whether it had status, whether the Sierra Club had status standing to bring such a case. And the Supreme Court, in a 7-2 decision with Douglas and Blackman dissenting, said uh, they had to prove that they were being injured. The Sierra Club okay, had to so prove injury, so they did not uh, uh, get status uh, as a result of, the, of that case. Okay. Thank you. Sorry about that. Uh, well, just, no, no, just a term of, of, of protocol here, just so everyone else can hear and we get it on the podcast. When a question will be asked, I'm going to repeat it so we have it on the podcast. Uh, I'm sorry. Thank That's you. That's okay. Thank Sir. You. Hi, John. Hi, Hi. Ronald. First, I'd like to say, John, um, 
Your documentary on the Reckling Group was fantastic. Oh, thank you. The Reckling, it's about the, uh, the greatest studio musicians ever assembled, and they appeared on almost every pop hit of the 60s and, and, and more. I'm going to see one tomorrow night, Leon Russell. Oh, great. Wow. So, um, well, thank you. It was fantastic. Arnold, I have to, whenever you talk about the Latin players, on the Giants especially, um, and when you talk about them, I think of Horace Stoner. I'm a firm believer that he did maybe, maybe the most for the Latin cause and the Latin players in the 60s. Yeah, other than me. <laughs> I'm also a firm believer that he should be inducted into the Hall of Fame. He's going to be going up to the Golden Era Committee, in, I guess, in a few years. Could you tell us about Horace Stone? Could you tell us about um, how you feel uh, concerning okay. uh, him in the Hall of Fame? So the question here is uh, to get Arnold's thoughts on Horace Stoneham and his possible candidacy for the Hall of Fame, <laughs> and consideration for the Hall of Fame. Uh, my, my, my immediate first answer is no, but uh, uh, I do like the thought that he did bring uh, the Latin ball player up where other owners and, and management uh, did not. Uh, and to that degree, he was very, very important. Uh, but there were things about him that I don't like. Uh, he would invite Hank Thompson in after a ball game, lock the door, open up the bottle of scotch, and the two of them would drink, and, and Hank Thompson would get drunk, and Horace Stone would get drunk, but he'd go to an expensive uh, drying out place for, 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 for white drunks, and Hank Thompson uh, limped back into his Harlem life, and, and, uh, and it, was, it, was, it, it helped to destroy Hank Thompson as a human being. So things like that bother me about, about Horace Stone. Go ahead. Um, John F. Kennedy, you're meeting with him. Um, was it the day after he was elected? No, the okay. day after he was the, nominated. The question here is about uh, Arnold's uh, interview with, with John F. Kennedy, which I believe was the day after he had received the nomination in 1960. Yes, he, he received the nomination, and the next morning uh, I went to his office in the sports arena, and this is in Los Angeles, and there was nobody outside the place. There was no Secret Service, no FBI, no entourage, no family, no press, no nobody. And so I knocked on the door, and, and Kennedy said, come in. I walked in. I was wearing my press credentials. And he said, ah, oh, the press has arrived. And I sat down, and for 25 minutes, he and I talked. The, the campaign, the, the campaign that would be against uh, uh, Richard Nixon. And uh, at one point, he, he made a little note on a piece of paper. I didn't know what that was, but about a week after the interview, or this <coughs> period we spent, it wasn't an interview, the period we spent together, I got a letter from the Kennedy headquarters in Washington appointing me to the Kennedy uh, National Speechwriting Committee. And so that, that's a line on a resume. It doesn't mean what it sounds. Uh, Ted Sorensen wrote all the speeches, and Kennedy wrote the rest of them. Uh, but we did research, and we would send stuff in. And once in a while, I'd hear a speech, and there'd be maybe a phrase in there uh, that, that came out of my research. That was, that was my total fame as a speechwriter for Kennedy. And before I forget, a couple of years ago, I wrote uh, a letter to you, and you responded back with a beautiful poem. Thank you very much, Arnold. I really, I treasure it. A that beautiful poem. poem? You wrote me a short poem. I did. Yes. Gee, that's what, uh, 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 <laughs> if I can get it back, maybe I can get it published, and we can spread it. A couple of weeks ago, Charles Stoughton was here to talk about the Black Sox scandal, his recent book on that topic. 
and when I heard you were coming, I looked at the novel, The Big Out, and it just caught my attention when I saw the dedication to Shoeless Joe Jackson, who batted 375 in the 1919 World Series. Uh -huh. I just wonder what your relationship or experience or feelings about Shoeless Joe. So the question is about uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson, uh, Arnold's thoughts on him, and Arnold had dedicated uh, his book, The Big Out, which I believe was wrote, written in what, 1950 or 51? Around there, I don't remember the date. Okay. Yes, okay. Okay. Uh, my my feeling is that that we were too harsh about uh, about certain things. Uh, uh, we have the so-called zero tolerance for for for, for uh, performance-enhancing drugs, which doesn't mean a thing. Uh, performance. If you violate it, you get slapped on the wrist, and you don't play for 50 days or 80 days. Uh, uh, Alex Rodriguez. Uh, and therefore, when somebody says to me, do you think that Barry Bonds should be in the Hall of Fame? I say no, comma, but. Uh, neither does Alex Rodriguez uh, should be allowed to be on the grass. Uh, so so uh, uh, we have Shoeless Joe Jackson uh, maybe getting a few bucks, maybe not. It, it was, it was, he said yes, he did get some money. It seemed to have been so little as to barely make a dent. And he did hit 375 in that World Series. Uh, so he was hardly not trying. Uh, uh, I wonder what would happen if he had been trying. <laughs> if he hit, hit 445 or something. And anyway, uh, uh, so this, this, this novel deals with a man uh, in, in today's uh, baseball back in 1950 who, who, who was falsely accused of, of, of throwing a ball game. Uh, and getting paid when this did not happen. Uh, and so I, I just use this to do that with, with Shoeless Joe Jackson, just to get it off my chest. And I, would, I read the book as part of my research for the film. It's one of the best baseball fiction books I've ever read. It is a terrific book, and I, I highly recommend it. And other, one other word about Joe Jackson was he had a lifetime ban. He's dead now. So he should be able to come back into baseball, as far as I'm concerned, if we're going by the letter of the law here. Okay. Anyway, th thank you for the comment about, about the quality of that novel. It, was a, it, it came out when, when dads were buying baseball books for, for 12 and 14-year-old sons, and this was one of those. But the New York Times, did, uh, a reviewer there said it was one of the most thrilling sports novels he had ever read. I assume he had read a total of three. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yes, more. Oh, come on. That it? No questions. That's how you got Nixon. <laughs> I mean, if, if we've all seen the film of, of Mazes Catch, if you were to tell somebody, what, what does that film miss? What is the film? What the, the question is, you saw Willie Mazes Catch in the 54 World Series. Uh, what does the film not capture that you saw 75 feet from the plane? This is something, I think about that catch, and I, I, in recent weeks, I've replayed it in my head, and the thing that is most astonishing about the catch is that when Wirtz hit the ball, Mays is playing wherever he's playing, 350 feet from home plate or whatever he is, uh, and he, he whirls and turns, I think probably before he hears the crack. Maybe he sees the swing, sees the contact, sight is faster than sound, and even before he could have heard it, he had turned, and he, he knew exactly where that ball was going to end up. He ran to that point, knowing exactly where the ball was going to end up, and he knew also from the beginning that he could get there in time. 
how in the world can that happen? How, what kind of body is that? What kind of mind or what kind of... Uh, it, it's a talent that, that, that baffles me as, as a sports writer, as a viewer, as a human being, that he could have world-run and knew, knew, and knew just where to go. At about halfway there, this little turn of his head at one time, and I thought, oh, he's trying to find the ball again. <coughs> but I think maybe he did turn, and maybe with his peripheral vision, he just affirmed where it was, and he continued. Uh, it, it, it was not a difficult catch to make once he, once he had done all those things, but it was an impossible catch to make, considering he had to know exactly where that ball was going to go. How did he do it? You've seen the film of that catch, like we all have, hundreds of times. When you picture it in your mind, are you picturing that film, or you're picturing your point of view? Ah. Uh, the question is. I know. Okay. <laughs> you know, what, I, I think we were close. To, I, just for the microphone, I think we were close. Yeah, that's okay. okay. Go ahead. Uh, I, 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 I really don't know whether I, I'm degree to what degree I've been uh, spoiled by the film or, or no. indoctrinated by the film. Uh, look, I'm sitting there in, in the Cedarfield bleachers, and and it occurs. And so I, I'm not immediately doing all this planting of, of evidence in my head. Uh, right. uh, I am a fan enjoying the day. And so uh, I, I think maybe, I, I, maybe, maybe it's a combination of the two. I, I will not deny that I probably read enough about it and saw it often enough that, that I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I'm, I'm guilty to a degree. Uh, when you look at that, in, in that film, you saw a picture of, of uh, Mark Olson's painting of, of Mays making that beginning to chase the ball, and the ball's up here someplace, and you see the, the vast expanse of, of, of the polo grounds. That, that's incredible. The, the ability that Mays had to cover ground was incredible. He was not as fast as Mickey Mantle, but he could get there before Mickey Mantle would have gotten there. He was not as graceful as, as Joe DiMaggio, but he would have gotten there before Joe DiMaggio would have gotten there. I, I'll tell you a, a, a negative story about me. Uh, I was in the bleachers in, in 1952 uh, to a ball game, about a month before Mays went into the Army. And it was a game against the Giants against the Phillies, and Mays hit a double over Richie Ashburn's head and a triple over Richie Ashburn's head. I'm sitting there watching these balls pass over him, and I, I thought to myself, that didn't even sound like a... Like, like a a really distant crack of the back kind of thing. I, I, so I said out loud to nobody in particular, uh, I don't think Mays really got all of that, and there's a guy sitting about two rows in front of me. This is typical banter, banter, bleacher banter stuff. And he turns around and he says, you are a moron. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I said, no, I'm not. He said, yes, you are, you're a moron. And so I thought for a while, I thought, you know, Maybe this guy's right. Maybe I'm, I'm missing something here. And so I went to Bill James's book, Baseball Abstract, and I tracked down uh, Richie Ashburn's ability to cover ground. Richie Ashburn made more putouts in center field than Willie Mays did. And so obviously Mays had gotten all of that ball because if he hit it over Ashburn's head, Ashburn would have caught it had he not gotten all of it. Uh, yeah, Ashburn on five occasions had 500 putouts or more in his center fielding. Mays had one, I believe. Uh, Mantle and DiMaggio were way down the line in, in that respect. Anyway. On, on the subject of Willie Mays, 
uh, you know, we, we shot, you know, a hundred to one ratio of interviews with Arnold. And if you go to the website for the film, which is haynodoc.com, there are some uh, nuggets there, some outtakes. One of them is Arnold talking about Willie Mays, the comparison to Mickey Mantle, and also some great stories about Babe Ruth. He covers all three guys in this particular clip, which is great. And then the other thing I thought about, I said, well, here's a guy that's seen a thousand baseball games since 1926. I sat him down, I said, you ought to give us your all-star team with the proviso. These, you had to have seen them all played live. Mm -hmm. And so that's also captured on there. Uh, I don't I really want to talk about that. He loves to talk about it. It, it, it was, it's wonderful to, to get that perspective. I, I, I can talk about it, but we'll, I, we'll I, let them I, just go I'd look at it. I'd rather you find it, and, uh, uh, and especially, especially study my selection of a second baseman. I know. I, uh, I want to get back to that catch, and I know <laughs> we can't separate the catch from the throw, but which was the real gem, the catch or the throw that made the question is, which was the real gem, the catch or the throw of Willie Mays' catch? Uh, well, it, it, A leads to B. He couldn't, have, he couldn't have made the throw unless he made the catch. And, 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 and his getting to get the ball was, was incredible. The throw itself, all by itself, was, was a better piece of work. He, he whirled, he threw the ball. I'll go back a bit. Uh, there's, there's a gentleman who was the, uh, the chancellor of the University of California at Irvine, uh, an African-American who was a personal friend of Willie Mays's. And he had asked Mays, <coughs> when that ball was hit, what went through your mind? And Mays said, two men on. So not only is he getting ready to catch that ball, he's getting ready to figure out how we can keep these men from advancing. <coughs> Larry Doby's going to advance from second to third, no matter what. But Al Rosen is going to come halfway up. And when Mays whirls and throws that ball, Non-stop, he, he, he goes way past the cutoff man, whoever the cutoff man was at that moment, and he throws the ball directly to second base, not around second base, he throws it to second base. And, and so Al Rosen just retreats, Dobie stops at, at third. The possibility in my mind had been that a ball hit that far and it would be possible for a man as fleet as Larry Dobie to go from second to home. Uh, but uh, Mays' quickness through the world, the throw, ended that possibility. Could I ask you what Willie Mays thinks of, you, of the book and of your work on him? No, that is okay. George was close enough to the microphone. Uh, okay. uh, in 1964, uh, when I was covering the Phillies in, in their uh, pennant chase, uh, uh, and I covered them for a week, and, and Part of it was a series against the Giants, and, and at that time, Doubleday had gotten in touch with me and said, you know, I think you should do a, a really definitive biography of Willie Mays, and we can pay you a blankety-blank bunch of dollars. So the Giants come in, and I said to Willie Mays, I said, I've gotten a nice offer from Doubleday to do a, a, a biography of you. And immediately, before I went any further, he said, 90-10. And I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> I know exactly what he means. Uh, and I said, Willie, 50-50. And he said, no, 90-10. And that ended the discussion. And to this day, Willie Mays is pissed at me. Uh, I, I think he thinks I cheated him out of a bunch of money or something. I, I can understand his bitterness. Uh, 
Here he is, at the peak of his career, he's making $140,000 a year, and he's getting practically no uh, commercials, none of those. Let's suppose he is doing a stupid commercial now. I see it over and over and over again. Uh, Willie Mays ne never had a chance to, to do any of those things. Nobody asked him. Today, a, 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 a guy who gets into six ball games a year in his rookie season because he's a pinch runner gets $570,000. And Willie Mays got 140 at his peak, and and so when he when Willie would see Al Silverman every so often, he'd say, "Is that guy Hano still writing for you?" And uh, Al would have to admit the guilt. He'd say, "Yes, he is." And and Willie Mays said, "Well, tell him to kiss my ass." <laughs> uh, and 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 six months later, when he saw Al Silverman, he said, "Is that guy Hano still working for you, or writing for you?" And Al had to admit it. He said, well, you taught to kiss my ass. So, so there's that of a limited sense of anatomy, among other things. <laughs> a anyway, so, so, so that, that's, that's, that's Willie and me. I, I, I would love to get past that. Willie Mays is a, is, is a very nice man, uh, and, he, and he's gone through an awful lot, and he's, uh, he, he deserves the accolades he gets, and I give that to him freely, but I'd like to be able to shake his hand sometime and say, uh, bygones be bygones, and, but... Uh, I think I think uh, John wrote a letter to to yes. Mays to see whether he would be interested in in, in this film and the, and he got no answer. No, no reply, sir. Do you still t attend games regularly? And if so, how many do you go to a year? The question is, does Arnold still attend games regularly? And how no, I don't. I don't. I, I am legally blind. It, it's a it's a waste of time. I, I'm a waste of. A, not two dollars and ten cents anymore. Whatever it would be, me to go to a ball game. I can sit up close to the screen at home. I have a 46, 48 inch screen. I can sit up close, and I can see most everything that happens. Fortunately, baseball is a game where you can where you can drop uh, your, your your water all over the floor. <laughs> uh, the uh, it, it, it's uh, it's too it's too bad that that I can't go. I would love to go. I think I, uh, I think I went with Chris Epting to, to the last game I saw. Is Chris here? No, no. He'll be. And, we'll see him Sunday. Oh, so, oh Sunday in that capacity. Yes. Yes. No. I, no, I don't. You guys went to an Angel game, right? Uh, I, I went. I went to an Angel game and to a Dodger game in that same period. Uh, I tell you the one thing, my friend Ray here, I think may have hit the thing right on the nose. He, I said to him one day about four years ago, I said, you know. Parity seems to be occurring. I said, uh, we're getting teams uh, like Toronto and, 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 and Tampa Bay and, and uh, uh, Kansas City and, and these other, all playing up at the top of the line. And Ray said, it's a parody of mediocrity. And I think <laughs> you saw that in the World Series. Uh, that was a, a very sloppily played World Series. I, uh, Kansas City deserved to win. They were the more opportunistic team. They were the better team, all that. But it was, it was a crappy series, uh, and and uh, I think I think he's right. I, I think Ray is right. It's when the black stock coming into baseball. I think that hurt, and when the fact we opened up, uh, so there were 16 teams in each league. Maybe it's a little too many. It, it spreads it around a little bit too much, and the emphasis on pitching because they can throw the ball 100 miles an hour. Uh, as I thought, as has I thought, I think. Uh, change quite a bit the quality of, of the play. I couldn't help but feel in Day in the Bleachers you talk about the journey portable radios to the stadium for the first time. Uh-huh. And your disappointment in that. Yeah. 
yeah. you'd be very, very disappointed to be sitting next to fans who have their, their phones out Taking selfies. I have a problem with, with, with the seeing anything. I, I, I have a, a, a mantra that one word is equal to a thousand pictures. Uh, so that, that's, I live, always live by one word is worth a thousand pictures. The other thing I, want, I would like to bring up is that Arnold wrote a string of, what would you call them? young adult books about athletes in the 60s. You did one about Roberto Clemente <laughs> yeah, and, well, uh, and uh, Willie Mays. I, I forget whether that was Dodney or, or Putnam. Putnam's, I guess that was, that wanted me to do a series of these, these biographies. My, my, my biography of Sandy Koufax, for instance, was an unauthorized, and that is, uh, I'm going to get a $500 advance, I'm going to split it with somebody? Yeah, and no way. So, so, so I, uh, I, I agreed with Putnam's uh, as to what we would be covering, and I wrote the, the, the biography. The Dodgers caught on that there was such a book coming out, and somebody called me, one of the front office called me and said, you know, we, we can sue you for this. I said, uh, what grounds? I don't know, sue you for libel. These people don't even know what the libel laws are like. I mean, that, that, there's nothing, they haven't read it, and yet they're going to sue me for libel. So, so, so I said to Putnam's, I said, why don't we let the, the Sandy Koufax read the book. See, we had the galleys or the final something or other. And he read the book. He liked it so much, he said, gee, can I sign copies? <laughs> and so here's my book that I wrote, and he's signing copies of five copies, and he was thrilled by it. So that ended that. Uh, anyway, I, I wrote those books that, that, that John is talking about. That, the, that uh, Koufax book won 14 printings in hardcover, that, which is the highest selling book uh, young people's book that that publishing house ever published. In 1966, uh, I was eight years old, and uh, my very first baseball book was a biography about Babe Ruth. My second book was about Willie Mays, and I brought it home, and he was my hero. And I said, well, who wrote this book about my hero? It was a man, I distinctly remember, it was a man named Arnold Haino. And um, I had to give the book back to the school, I went to Catholic school, otherwise it's a sin if you, you, know, you steal it. It's a venial sin, though. Anyhow, um, uh, but while I was just finishing up the project, I said, I gotta get a copy of that book back. So I got it on eBay, and I, I started thumbing through it. I said, you know, for this, you would never guess it was written for a young adult. It's, it's, it's beautifully written, and I was getting all sorts of really cool stuff out of it. So at the end of the journey here, he finally signed my book, which I thought was very nice. The, 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 the first biography that I did uh, uh, on Willie Mays was, a, was an Al Silverman assignment. Uh, McFadden Bartell, which owns Fort Magazine, wanted a biography of Willie Mays paperback. And so I did that. And uh, that sold 480,000 copies, which was more than any, the total of all the other books on Willie Mays put together. Uh, and, you know. So, there were reports of Willie Mays being brusque with reporters in the 60s for sometimes for absolutely no provocation. Did you see any of that? Uh, only, only, only insofar as he wanted, he wanted to get paid. I cannot imagine why not. He, he, uh, he, he felt he was being cheated out of something or other, and he wanted to be paid. So if he wanted, if he wanted his time, you'd have to pay. For, you'd have to get somebody to pay for it. And I could not get Al to or, or Swart magazine to pay him at all. Nothing. Cheapskates. Right. Willie Mays was the perfect example of a five-tool player. Um, but I've always also believed that he was a very smart, he doesn't get enough credit for being as smart as he was on the field. 
but also, and also as a great leader, team captain, what are your memories and, uh, and recollections of him as being a leader in the clubhouse as well as on the field? What was your I, recollection I, I, yes, of I, don't, I don't know that I have any clubhouse. recollection of that. Let me just think. Uh, Willie McCovey would speak highly of Willie Mays as, as, as a captain and as a leader. Uh, uh, and yet he was, a, he and, and Orlando Cepeda almost came to blows at, at one time. Uh, and when he was in, in Winter League, he almost fought with Ruben Gomez about something or other. So I, I'm not so sure I, I followed that he was much of a leader. Uh, he, he led by, by, by example. He hit in, in the clutch, he, 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 caught, he caught balls nobody else could catch, he, he made throws nobody else would make. It's to that degree, they must have all looked up to him. Uh, I would have, uh, any, anybody would have thought this, this was something that you take advantage of, you, you learn from, the, from it. I think, he, I think that was by example more than, than by uh, out, out, outward uh, running of anything. His smartness was, was a, a physical thing, such as that description I made of his turning and knowing where that ball was <coughs> going to be caught. I've never met another ball player with it. There's, there's, a, there's a horror storm, stone story I can tell at this point. Uh, in the 1962 World Series, uh, Stone, who was no longer the owner, I guess, of the Giants, or maybe he was, was he still the owner he of the Giants? He was. He was. Okay. He, he, saw, he saw Mickey Mantle and Elston Howard and Whitey Ford. And he said, look, you guys can come to my club and, and, uh, and it'll give you a free day. Uh, uh, the reason I know the story is it, it all came through through a Bob Costas interview of Willie Mays. Anyway, uh, and, and, uh, and then he turned to Whitey Ford and said, and if you can strike him out once, Mil Willie Mays, strike him out once, I'll give you a second day. You can have a second day on the house, uh, uh, everything, uh, you know, drinks, food, everything. So this is Stoneham saying, Stone, Stone. and this is to at the Olympic Club, which was a very exclusive yeah, yeah, club okay. in San Francisco. Uh, anyway, uh, there's Mays at the plate, and Whitey Ford is pitching, and, and Willie Mays is saying to Bob Costas, Costas you know, I own Whitey, I own Whitey, there's no <laughs> way. And I, I looked out and I could see Mickey Mantle laughing. This is the wonder, this wonderful physical ability that these guys have, that Ted Williams has, that Stan Musial has, that you can look 350 feet away and see a man smile. <laughs> anyway, he said to Elston Howard, he's still waiting for that pitch, he's, wait, he's saying, what's going on here? And Elston Howard said, I will tell you later. And, uh, uh, and Whitey Ford puts spit on the ball and <laughs> strikes him out. And, uh, and it turns out that, uh, that Elston Howard then explains to, to, uh, uh, to Willie Mays exactly about the horror stone thing. Anyway. Shannon, you had a question. Yeah. Did you get to know Willie McCovey well? I got to know him. Pretty well. I wrote the first magazine piece about him. Uh, this, here's this kid, 19 years old, and he plays that first game. Uh, you all remember the first game he played against the Phillies. Uh, uh, how, did, how did he go? Two singles, two triples. Two singles and two triples <laughs> against Robin Roberts. And when he pulls into the third base, I don't know who the third baseman was. I don't think it was Mike Schmidt. But the, but the third baseman said to him, Lighten up, boy, you're pressing. <laughs> I mean, it, it's so lovely. Anyway, uh, so, so Sport Magazine, Al asked me to do a piece on Willie McCovey and, and this young guy, who is, and, and the, he hit 354 that rookie season. He was rookie of the year, etc. So I, I interviewed him. I forget where I interviewed him, but I interviewed him. 
And um, in the interview, I said, among other things, uh, what is it like to be a 19-year-old bachelor in, in the city of San Francisco, blah, blah, blah. And he said, he thought, he said, well, he said, it's not so. He said, I got this young lady in trouble, and we got married, and she had a baby, a little girl, and then we got divorced, and I will take care of that child all that child's life. Uh, I said to him, do you want to see this in print? He said, no. I said, well, you know, there's such a thing as saying, I'll tell you something off the record, or, 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 or it's no comment. I'm not going to talk, talk about things like this. He didn't know. He thought that once he'd agreed to the interview, it was uh, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So, my God, he, he, he felt obliged <laughs> wow. to tell me this thing. Now that, uh, 20 years later, I saw him when he was, I think, with San Diego. He, he, he made that strange move. He was now with San Diego, and he's grown. I said, how is your daughter? And he said, oh, she's lovely. She's, uh, you know, everybody knows about my relationship now, and blah, 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 blah. So I can talk about it uh, uh, this way. But uh, that, I liked him. Uh, he, he was, he was a, a grand young guy and, and, uh, uh, and a brilliant ball player. He said, and Alvin Dog still thinks I can't hit left-handers. I mean, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Alvin Dog was, was, a, was a piece of work also. Uh, don't get me off on him. <laughs> Lincoln. Um, first, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that neither you, me, or Elson Howard was alive at the Olympic Club for the 1950 defensive game. Um, pretty much. Yeah. But my, my question is this. The movie starts, early in the film, there's this, you watch the Bill Terry play first base, and then a few seconds later, you sitting in the, uh, watching a youth baseball game in California by, by uh, the A high school game. High school game. So there's this trajectory of the lifetime of, as a baseball fan. Um, and, and I may be halfway there, but I have a similar trajectory as a baseball fan. And I'm wondering, how do you place your passion for baseball into your life more broadly? And how has it informed your life more broadly, your attitudes, your broader kind of emotions and, and psychological health and health. See, I think you should write my autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that. I like what you, the way you said it. Uh, I love baseball. I love, I love a lot of sports. I, I love baseball far and away above the other sports. It's an elegant uh, sport. It's a sport where you can see what is going on, and yet you can't know everything that's going on. Uh, when you watch it on television, for instance, you see four people. You saw the pitcher, the catcher, the umpire uh, and the batter, I guess. I'm, I'm going to pitcher, four, four, I think there are four pieces. Pitcher, catcher, batter, and the umpire. That's all you. And then once in a while it spreads out, the focus is, is taken away from you. When you go to a ball game, and especially if you sit in the seat as far back as the bleachers, the focus is yours. You, you can do whatever you damn please. That with. You can watch the outfielders and they, which, which way they're going to play this guy. You can watch the, the shortstop and second base and have them flashing little signals before the pitcher throws the ball. You know what's going on. You can see what something is going on. Uh, now, how does, that, how does that manifest itself through the rest of my life? It, it bothers the hell out of my wife, I know. <laughs> 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 well, what is, what is this crazy thing that these baseball... She says, I, uh, I, if she tells me to do two things, I can remember one. Uh, but, he, but he can remember a, a, a statistic back in 1937 about, uh, about, the, uh, about Councilman and the fact that, 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 that Bill Terry let him go into a game and, and he pitched 15 innings and, and uh, 15 runs. Anyway, she's right. Uh, but, but I think there is something you about... You have your priorities. 
Thank you. I think there's something right, something about loving something like that, uh, that, that, that it's just healthy and, and, and beautiful, and I'm, I'm pleased with it. So I don't, I don't I'm know that it's done anything to my along life. Along with that, do you think it, so much of that is because you came to it so young? It helped. It helped. It helped. It helped. It helped. I had a brother who was three and a half years older when he made his when he formed his semi-pro team. Uh, those guys were eighteen. I was fifteen. Uh, he let me play on that team, uh, uh, and and my my father was a a great fan. One day I sat on a, on a, in the first in the grandstand. My grandfather, my father, me, and my brother. Now. My grandfather had seen Honus Wagner, uh, and, and uh, I could say to him, tell me about Honus Wagner, and I remember one thing he said, hands big as pillows. And not only was it the size of it, it was the softness of it that, that told me what kind of ball, what kind of shortstop Honus Wagner must have been. Uh, my father had seen uh, Christy Matthewson and, and all those guys, and my brother and I had seen Babe Ruth and everybody on, on up there. And, you know, so, so it, it was easy to be involved, uh, and, uh, and it was a lovely thing to be involved with. Anyway, thank you guys. You, 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 you're great, and I appreciate you.